from New York City. A podcast from working actors, directors, and playwrights. This is the Cry Havoc Company. Hello, and welcome to the Cry Havoc Podcast. Today around the table we have... Jen Reichert, I'm a writer. Jenny Curlin, I'm an actor. Tim Davis, I'm a writer and an actor. And Kit Lavoy, I'm a director and a writer. Today we're doing the second part of our five-part series on writing plays. The first part, which we uh, released a little while ago, was on preparing to write. Today we're going to be talking about writing the first draft... And in the future, we're going to be doing episodes about receiving and internalizing feedback on your writing, on rewriting, and on being the playwright in the room in rehearsal. So what we're talking about today is, I think, what a lot of people think of as being, quote-unquote, writing a play. That time where you sit down at a computer and, on a blank page, write yourself a world and characters But, again, as we talked about the last time, there's a lot that goes into preparing to do that, and then there's several other steps after getting it down for the first time. Today we're talking about the process of writing the first draft of your play. So, to start off, let's uh, recap a little bit from each of the playwrights in the room about what it was that we discussed in the last episode on writing. What is it that you know when you do finally sit down at your computer or your legal pad or whatever you write on? What do you already know before you put the first word to paper in a script form? I know who my characters are, what they want, and what the initial situation or scenario that they're uh, that we find them in. And I probably know how some of the things that I want them to uh, to happen to them throughout the course of the play. And I probably know the ending. I know general threads of, of what's important to me thematically, and, and they're all like sort of little DNA strands, which sort of the, <laughs> hopefully the rest, through the coding that's in those sort of strands, the rest of the play will happen. It's, it's sort of a, a, a random hodgepodge of theme, perhaps uh, an exchange uh, that seems important to me, or is at the core of the thing that I, I, I'm interested in writing about, perhaps several characters, a setting, a world. It's, I think, all of the things that, that Jen is talking about, but f- for me they're usually in a, a much less established way. There's sort of a general sense of where I'm going or going to go. I tend to have, I think, a, a much more sort of structured picture of where I think I'm going to go. I mean, we'll, we'll talk a bit today about how close you end up in writing your first draft where you imagine you're going. But I usually do have an outline that lays out sort of the major events of the play and the order in which they happen. Plus, like you said, Tim, sort of a lot of ideas for dialogue, um, little snatches of dialogue and things like that, that I have laid out sort of where, you know, in between which major events in the play, those those either smaller revelations or or, or bits of, of interaction might come. I also oftentimes have, like, a list of facts, things that I've decided are true, either about what the action will be or things that are true about the characters. And I feel like I, I usually know, have an I, 
this sounds a little bit weird given that I said I have a, a structure uh, that's laid out that much, but I actually feel like I, I usually know where the story's going, where it's ending up. That actually is something I will say and we'll talk about later. It very often does not end up where I think it's going to end up. But I usually know where, and actually something else that would be worth discussing a little bit is I actually usually in a full-length play have a very clear idea of where the first act ends more necessarily than the end of the play which has caused me to have to paint myself out of corners in a few in a few cases and I think basically I feel like I have a sense of what the world is that the play is going to take place in I have images and I think partly because I'm also a director I'm actually not sure if that is impactful on this or not but that I do tend to have images of moments that feel very evocative to me that feel like what the story is about and what the relationships are about and I think those sometimes are the fence posts the the landmark things that I'm writing towards is this moment that feels very much like the play that I know I want to write so I actually kind of feel like I, I usually walk in with a, a, a pretty clear plan. But I think as we'll talk about today, it doesn't always go according to that plan. But for me, uh, as we talked about in the, in the last episode about preparing, it helps me proceed um, confidently to have that much information walking in. So let's, before we start kind of breaking it down and talking about a lot of the specifics... Because actually, I found the last episode we did talking about this, I mean, I feel like I actually know both of you guys quite well as writers, but there actually were things about your specific process that I did not know and was surprised and interested to learn about how you approach the process when you're actually alone in a room. But now when you're talking about being alone in the room to actually uh, write your first draft, what is your basic process to do that? Jen? Well, I... These days I write in Final Draft, which is a, a screenwriting and playwriting software. I have my notes with me, and having a very good sense of who the people are, not just what their names are and what they do, but I, I have a, like, a, like a fully fleshed version of these people in my head. I start from the beginning, from what I think the scenario is. I think from the opening moment, what I think the opening moment is, and I, and it takes me a little while to get it rolling but once I can write kind of the opening stage moment the stage direction I just start from the beginning and write the first scene with those characters and I you know I I always I always go in order I go from the beginning to the end I go from the beginning of the scene to the end of the scene and I pick up where that scene left off and I go to the you know I write that scene through and it's very the where the place where it gets circular for me is within a series of about three lines where I like kind of circle around the last three things, the last three moments, and I'm like, is that right? And I try different things, I try to piece different dialogues, but knowing who these people are and how I think they would talk and what the situation is and what I think they want, I just kind of like let them talk and I write it out and I and then I just make sure I like the way it sounds, I like what they're responding to and I just try to go from the beginning to the end. You know, I I said in one of the earlier podcasts that I, I write exactly the opposite of how I act. And uh, I, I've been thinking about that. I think that's, that's actually completely untrue. <laughs> um, and that uh, I was thinking about what my actual writing process is. And I tend to have a general theme that's of interest to me. And then 
I'll write something, a snatch of dialogue, uh, something that's come to me, and then I'll, I'll tend, and I write in final draft as well, and if something immediate comes to me, I'll scribble it down in a notebook, transcribe it in a final draft, but then I'll, I'll sort of leave it until I come back to write again when something else is sort of kicked around. I'll, I'll sort of let that kick around in me for a couple of days, whatever it is I've written, and how that works on me and what that allows me to be interested in or what that allows me to explore more thoroughly. And then when something seems at least somewhat coherent or something's in the process of cohering, I put it down again. And I tend to sort of build what I'm writing in in, in that type of process and almost an experimental, you know what, this is an interesting thing that's kicking around. It's been kicking around for a few hours, for a few days. I, I might want to get this down and, and try this out in the same way that I would as an actor in a rehearsal process. Um, and I'm sure we'll get to <laughs> discussing what a first draft looks like, but because of that, my, my first drafts tend to be <laughs> a very interesting mess. It, it's actually really interesting, you know, you uh, talking about the way that you are that you're acting, that it relates to your acting. Because I actually find, and actually I don't think I ever put this thought to it until you just said that right now, but I am also a, primarily a director and a writer, and I also have acted and just don't as much as I would like to but anymore. But I actually find that a lot of what I do is my preparation is the director side of me. And then I let the actor side of me do the drafting in a lot of ways. That that I think that there's a lot of ways that the same way that I feel like a director with like a clear vision and a respect for the actor's uh, impulses is really important. Likewise, having that again very st- clear structure of uh, you know fence posts and facts and information about these characters and information about the world that they live in really gives me the freedom, I feel like, to when it actually sits down, basically to let it be this extended improvisation where I'm playing both characters, yeah. or all three or four characters, except that I, except that because I have laid out sort of, uh, you know, this, this, this maze of facts and, and, and situations that I need to navigate, usually, again, it gives me things to navigate around. It gives me things to react against as these characters. Mm-hmm. And and I mean that really for me that's so much of what the first draft is, is it's 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 really a very free process. But it but it, it's free that's not just about I mean I know as an actor I hate it when a director's like, all right, first day of rehearsal, just get up and just do what you feel. Well there's not a lot to work with there. I think the actors at the table will will agree. I mean, there's you know you can get up and do what you feel, but acting is about reacting to what's going on. And you know, again, I feel like so much of what my process as a writer is is sitting down and basically improvising on the page, but playing off of and trying to navigate around kind of all of these rules that I set for myself in the preparation. You know, what's interesting about my acting process as it relates to my writing process is that without sounding too pretentious seeing plays and being in plays or, or seeing films and or, or writing films or being in films it presents an opportunity for me to learn learn something spiritually learn something emotionally learn something intellectually and that's kind of how I approach both writing and acting is that when I'm inspired to write a piece specifically as it relates to this topic I almost do almost no research other than what I already know or just picked up organically as a human being living life and we'll start writing and we'll inevitably come to a point 
in those snatches of dialogue or in those flashes where I'll realize I don't know anything about this subject. Mm-hmm. I better go learn about this subject if I'm going to do that. And yeah. that relates to my acting process as well because I do a lot of research, but I tend to do it throughout rehearsal as I learn how I'm like my character and how I am completely different from my character and realize where I have to mm-hmm. fill those holes in. And it's it's funny, I've, I've, I have snatches of, of several plays in a screenplay that I'm working on that A, I'm allowing you know whatever I've already written to, to kick around in me, but B, realizing there's sections where I need, I need to do some research in order to get to the, the next step in that writing process. Yeah. Research has actually played such a huge role for me. And I, again, I think as a director especially, I'm a real research hound. I just, anything that I'm doing, I like to read as much as possible about, again, just to have facts to play with. But I know for myself when I'm writing, I really, again, like to pen myself into things that are real. And, for instance, in Makes Three, one of my plays, they end up running off to Ohio. And part of my process for that was I really did some real research on an actual town in Ohio, and they are calling churches out of Yellow Pages, and they're all actual churches, and they talk about going to the store, and, you know, it's an actual store, and the length of time it takes them to get there... I Google mapped it, and it's just the amount of time it would take to get there from this, um, you know, from this hotel that's an actual hotel. And again, that's something that I don't think is a necessary part of being a writer. I mean, a writer can absolutely make up a town. But for me, I know, I feel like it really frees me to act on the page as these characters if the characters are not allowed to make up their world, if the characters need to deal with the reality you know, both the reality of what the other people are trying to do and stop them from doing, but also the reality of what it would be like to be in this place and in this time and with whatever the materials are that they have. So that becomes a really... The the research is actually a lot of times where I start, and it actually is not so much to find answers as it is to find problems to solve. Hmm. And I find actually a lot of times that that creates, helps to create texture in a scene. You know, I mean, I, I did a, a, a wrote a show about someone who was on a reality show, and part of what my research was was what are the dis- non disclosure agreements they sign and things like that, so that it was it was actually you know what is this person penned in by when they're having to deal with the the other person about what happened on this reality show. Do you do research, Jen, a lot when you? I do some. Like, if I may have had some initial, you know, piece of. Uh, like news or something that was my initial entree into writing a certain play but I tend to write more about things that I have personal experience with so there's not quite such deep research necessary it's more about remembering what certain people were like you know or certain places were like and then putting new people into those places and and also I mean, every once in a while, like, I've said it in a certain place, and, you know, there was a play where somebody was going to a lake, so I looked up the name of an actual lake that was in that area, uh, that kind of stuff. But I do not tend to write about uh, people who do things that I don't understand. I, I realize this now, like, I, I've heard of, like, well, there, there are some some shows that I can't imagine writing for that are really technical, like, on television, like, there's, like, ER or bones or something where it's like a, a forensic show. I know nothing about forensics. I could not possibly begin to write a, a an episode of 
even the West Wing, like, I don't know how that works. There are people who do, and they write about it, but there's also people who learn about it and write about it. And I just, I tend not to, I, I don't really know how I would learn those things without being on the inside, and by the way that I write. You know, it's a minor part because m most of my research is internal in some way. I wonder from, from both of you, because I mean, I think that probably most people when they think about writing, I may be wrong about this, but I mean, of the theatrical disciplines, the acting and the directing and the writing, probably think of writing as being the most academic of the three, mm -hmm. uh, maybe the driest of the three, if it were. How, for lack of a better word, and this is truly for lack of a better word, but I, I hope you'll understand what I'm saying. How emotional an experience is writing for you? I think when I'm really cooking, <laughs> it's really, it can be really emotional because I am trying to, I, it's just my, it's, this is probably a personal approach, so probably other people have it, have similar approaches. I am sort of playing both characters in my head, imagining what, what it would be like to hear what the other person's saying, knowing what I know and what I need. And like, so I'm kind of, I kind of sometimes really work myself up, like with what's going on with both of these people trying to make it even handed and not, you know, having it, it real flesh thinking people who, who have problems and, and are trying to solve them and are frustrated and are, you know, trying different things. And so I, but it takes me a while to get there. You know, it's, it's sometimes it takes me, you know, an hour of sitting at the computer thinking about it before I get rolling on the dialogue and the dialogue just starts coming and coming and coming and then I get more emotional as I go. When I do a reading of a play of mine, especially the first time, I sweat absolutely terribly and I'm incredibly nervous. And the reason I say that is because I often don't know what I've done. When I initially start writing, particularly a first draft, parts of it are so unconscious for me that where I am just sort of flowing and it just seems to be the next thing that needs to be said or done and uh, I, I don't mean to be cavalier about it but particularly with the first draft it, it it's such an organic process for me that seems almost entirely sub subconscious or unconscious in which I would have a very difficult time explaining why any character is doing what they're doing or even in, in some cases, even what this particular play is about, um, I tend to stumble about that way. So that by the time I get to a reading, it's it's sort of dawning on me what I've done. That type of, of cognizance isn't there while I'm writing uh, that first draft when I'm by myself. So I think for me, it's it's a very organic process, but in a way in which I don't have any particular emotional reaction to it while I'm going through that. It's in those second, third, fourth drafts as I see things start to piece together where I have realizations or frustrations that I start having responses of which I'm aware. Mm. I find that writing is, I think, like a... Again, I said, for lack of a better word, because emotional isn't the right word, but I feel like writing for me is an incredibly connective experience. Uh, and, and I think an emotional one. There certainly have been times where I've been sitting there writing and am just a total goddamn mess sitting there at the keyboard, <laughs> um, you know, trying to do things. But I, I mean, I, I am generally of the opinion that in a show worth seeing, every moment should either thrill you or break your heart. You know, and I kind of feel like when I'm writing, 
I will do a lot of sort of rehearsing in my heads. I tend to write in spurts, write in chunks, you know, that I mm-hmm. will sit and I'll be on thinking about, you know, I know what the next place is that I'm going, I know where I am, and I'll kind of run through and let the characters, you know, do what they're doing and then back up and let them have another chance at it until I find the thing that either just literally makes me whimper because I kind of can't believe what it would be like to hear somebody say that to you or because I find it thrilling because usually actually if something ends up being funny I don't so much find it funny in the moment I'm writing it as I find it thrilling because it's like Mm -hmm. wow that's kind of daring of that person to say that whatever it is but that usually is for me kind of the sense memory of when I've struck on something is a, you know again I'll I'll try and be I'll be running things in my head running things in my head running things in my head and all of a sudden I'll feel like yes that's it and then I'll have to backtrack and try to remember what this three pages of dialogue was that I'd worked out in my head and, and actually start putting it down I think that's the most difficult part for me is you know, we, we've talked a lot about like the discipline of the artist in these podcasts and you know, I think if you are going to act you need to act all the time in some way and use that instrument. If you're going to write, you need to write all the time in, in, in some capacity. Now, I attempt to do that, but that doesn't mean I write plays a lot. And I, I'm thinking about the question about, you know, that sort of organic, visceral experience. And <laughs> in a weird way, I may be the toughest audience I may face, at least on an emotional level, because often, particularly in that first draft, you know, I said I'll, I'll write and then walk away and you know let it kick around. I often write not until I reach a certain specific point, uh, to the end of a scene or the end of a of an act. I write until I'm bored. I write until I'm sort of you know I, I really you know attempt to and I don't know how successful I am. That's for other people to judge. But I really attempt to write things that are sort of sumptuous and muscular and are full of life and in, in, in wine terms are sort of fruit forward and. So when I am excited and something kicks in, I want to write that. And when I feel that that flavor sort of starting to uh, dissipate, d- thank you, dissipate a little bit, I tend to just close up the notepad or close up the laptop and and, and go off and do something else. Hmm. I usually run out of time, <laughs> <laughs> or can't stay awake. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I do. I do. I also find like what I was saying about the th- three lines or three moments. That's that's what I was talking about was like the spurts where it's like I'm kind of mulling something over until it feels right and sometimes I write it out and sometimes I just think it in my head but it's really kind of like this like circular circulating around a moment around an exchange and finding the one that feels you know that, that gives me some like oh yeah it's, it's interesting that you know if, if you think of the writing as like a chase like like the first draft the way it comes out for me, it feels like this series of, of desperate sprints as whatever sort of pops up. I'm trying to get out and trying to get out mm-hmm. while it's still, you know, within my grasp. And then it's the later drafts that become this <laughs> this procedural, you know, marathon, marathon <laughs> to put this thing together. Okay, you've, you've set out all these benchmarks for yourself. You had all of these, you know, the, these signposts. It's, it's, it's funny. I always know how something I'm writing begins and ends. And it's, it's that journey that I wind up sitting there going, what have I done? I have to put hmm. this thing together. Well, that actually is is interesting, actually, again, because of the way that I happen to work with the amount of sort of prep, structural preparation that I do. I mean, I certainly rewrite, and there are times where I rewrite extensively. But I actually usually feel pretty good about my first drafts of things. I mean, they feel like a first draft, but there is 
I often I feel like it's very rare that I have something that I finish and I'm like I don't think I want to show this to anyone. There certainly have been things that I've finished and been like I'm not sure I want to show this to anyone not because I'm not I think it's lousy but because I worry about what they'll think it says about my psyche or whatever that that I, I happen to write it. But actually that's an interesting question. Are you ever aware when you are writing of how the writing will be received? And perceived, you know, received in terms of will people like this as you're writing it, and perceived in terms of will people extrapolate anything about it, about you from it. Yeah, I I think I'm aware of it because for me, the initial gestation point for writing is always there's, there's a question or there's a conflict that I'm interested in exploring. And so often when I'm writing... You know, I, I'm, I'm certainly not my own inspiration. You know, the, the other people around me, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have amazing, interesting people around me. And, you know, the, the struggles that come out of those different perspectives often find their way into the things I write. And and so I worry once in a while if someone will recognize not the argument verbatim, but, you know, the, the, the sort of core fundamentals at which I'm, I'm struggling with and... and which aspect of that conflict they may or may not represent and whether I have represented them fairly, accurately, and kindly. I think sometimes when I'm writing, I'm aware that somebody specific will hear it. And that's like, like what I'm representing. Maybe it's something that happened to me I, that I might be aware of. Like, I'm actually kind... Not transcribing, but describing a moment that actually happened in some way mm-hmm. or a conversation that actually happened because it's an argument in an argument kind of a, a, a sense but mostly I only feel a sense of audience when it's really in the like tragic horrific zone not I don't imagine people like laughing at things or uh, it, you know reacting to what's going on except when I start crossing kind of like personal comfort lines, which I don't, you know, they're, they're, they're a lot rarer where I start thinking, ooh, I wonder what, maybe this is too far or something well, like yeah, that. Yeah, because I think there's uncomfortable truths that people hold and where you have different perspectives about what those truths are. It's uncomfortable sometimes to deal with people you know with and to deal with them in, in regular old conversation over, over dinner let alone to put them on a stage or on, or on a piece of film and, and for the, to then be a part of public discourse. That's mm-hmm. There's a certain amount of daring on that. Because the, the other aspect of that is is you don't ever, as a, uh, a writer, want to be accused of, of stacking the deck, of simply articulating an agenda right. um, or articulating your merely your side. Right. So mm-hmm. if you give efficacy and uh, you make an unpopular or, you know, ill-perceived motive or agenda attractive in some way people could think do they think that yeah Mm. you know like if you're trying to accurately portray someone who believes differently than you people can wonder if you also believe that way yeah Yeah. and i i mean i find which i find interesting actually that i there are two plays of mine that i can think of that are in some way based on actual people but it's actually that I, re- I just realized I very rarely do that. I do very often have an actor in mind or something so I can picture it coming out of them. Um, you know, I mean, that helps me ground myself. But but very rarely do I write about actual events. I, I well, have. Um, what I, what I, like, 
a, an example of what I meant is like the it, in the play Mikey wears braces. There's a character who talks about how they used to have braces that they couldn't have removed, and somebody I know had that. That's what happened to them. It was not a musician locked in an alley, but it was a real person that they kind of went through that, and so who was? I mean, it was an adult who could not get their braces removed because they did not have money or insurance right, and it was right. a source of shame for them. Right. Yeah. So yeah, so so I took somewhat what was communicated to me as something of a source of shame to somebody that I know and then I sometimes put that in front of that person to listen to. Mm-hmm. So that's even though they are not the character that I was writing, I took a moment from their real life and I put it on somebody else. It, it's funny cuz I think at some point you want for me, I'll speak only for me. You wanted to say something about the way you're perceiving the world or the struggles you're having, yet at the same time, you don't want the sum of your existence and your perspectives to be summed up by that one particular piece of writing. Um, I'm thinking of when I, I saw a, a Neil Butte short play. His name escapes at this point. It was done at the Ensemble Studio Theater uh, two years ago. And uh, the, the play ends with a pregnant married woman in order to to enact vengeance against her philandering husband. She stabs herself in the belly, uh, possibly mortally injuring herself and and obviously uh, uh, injuring the baby. And it's one of the most horrific things I've ever seen on stage. And I was talking to someone after the play, and we were all viscerally disturbed by it, and she made the argument that Mr. LeBute hated women. And the only reason for that play to happen the way it did was so that he could have a beautiful woman destroy herself on stage in front of people. And I went home and I thought a lot about that. And I'm not sure if that was true or not, but even if it were true that that's what that play was about, which I'm not sure if that's ultimately what that play was about, I'm not sure if it's fair to limit Mr. LeBute in that way. Even if he wrote a misogynistic play in which his intention was to watch a beautiful woman destroy herself. I'm not sure if his sum existence, not only as a writer, but as a person, Mm -hmm. can be summed up in, this is a writer who hates women. Um, And I think that that's that's a fear for for writers. That is interesting, and I I had two very interesting thoughts, or what I find interesting thoughts, about that, which is that one, I find, and I'd actually be interested to know what you guys think, I actually feel like ultimately... I feel a surprising lack of ownership over my writing. Like when I have a finished play. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I am also a director and I often direct the first productions of plays that I write. But I really, when it's done, when I think of Good Enough, which was a play that I wrote and after... I somehow don't really think of that as being something that I wrote. I know I did. I'm Mm -hmm. proud of it. But somehow... I don't think of it like I imagine Glengarry Glen Ross and David Mamet are linked at the hip and they will forever. And I wonder how he feels about Glengarry Glen Ross. And I don't in any way disavow any of my plays in any way, but I, it, I, I find it strange. And I wonder, but I don't know why it is. I don't know how you guys feel about that, With the, the that I, I somehow feel, lose track sometimes of the fact that I was actually the one who wrote plays that I am now distanced by, you know, a few months or years from. I'm curious about my own relationship between 
to go back to the process of acting and the process of writing. I'm curious by the inversion of this in that I have a very diligent, specific, organic, but very specific, systemic process for my acting. And I'm very disciplined about it and yet hold almost no ownership over my performances. I'm, re- I'm responsible as in taking care of the other actors, making sure the, the, the story that needs to be told is told. But for me, people who do not enjoy my performances, it, it doesn't matter a whole lot to me. People who enjoy my performances, I'm very, very thankful for them. But I'm usually just thankful that they came and, and saw them. And, and anything specific they have to say is always nice to hear. But I, for some reason, I don't internalize it. I don't internalize it. I actually you know? will say the same thing, especially about my writing, which yeah. I find interesting, is that it's wonderful to hear that someone sees your place and says, I really loved it, yeah. or I really hated it, is not as good to hear, certainly. Right. But I do find that it is interesting that I really do not take that, either the good or the bad, particularly personally. But the thing, I that, I've, I've talk, <laughs> the thing that I've talked to about a lot is that, you know, I, I'm... And perhaps this goes back to uh, acting longer than, than I've been writing, but my writing process is sort of, it's much less systemic and much less rigorous than my acting process, yet I have such an attachment to my plays in terms of how they'll be received and how people uh, will perceive them. And it's, it's that inversion that bothers me, that I seem to work so diligently at the acting and then, hmm. Well, is, is it because I also don't mean to say that I don't care about the plays. No. But it really is, like, I feel like my relationship when I'm done writing them, and I guess maybe we're jumping several episodes ahead so we should steer back to our first draft, but I, but, but I feel like my relationship to the play, once I've put it to bed, is more as advocate for this hmm. thing that is a thing of its own. I mean, I definitely, I, I like it, I want to see it done, but I really usually feel about my plays that I want to see it done like I want to see a good play that Tim wrote done, because it's a good play, and I want to see it done. But that being said, and taking a step back more towards the first draft, that I actually do find, as much as I say I feel some level of distance and lack of personal whatever, when I do find sometimes when I'm bringing in something that feels sensitive in one way or another or potentially controversial like to our workshop group to get feedback you preface sometimes I preface it and sometimes I say a lot of times I say is I'm not sure what I've done here especially on a first draft or this might be terrible but not meaning terrible writing just like this this might be difficult (laughs) to sit through because because usually again what I what I tend to do is really let my characters go yeah. And and they hurt each other and they get hurt and do something worse to the other person and the other person comes back at them and it it sometimes does get to places that make me uncomfortable for people to think that the reason that I wrote that is do you know what it is actually is usually I don't set out to write things that get as extreme as what I write gets. But again because I feel like I I let the characters sort of run as things get bad they step up and and they end up doing really complicated things to each other. And I'm surprised by it. But I think my fear is never when I'm writing it that I'm afraid what will people think when I'm writing it. But when I'm done and step back, I do worry. Do, will people think the reason I sat down was to write that terrible thing that happens on the second to last page? Because that just happened. 
that wasn't why I sat down. That was that that just that just happened, man. I mean, that's when these characters went at each other. That's what happened, and that was not my intention. And I feel like it's earned. And in the end, I feel like it's what's right for the play. But I am, I am, I think that's what it is. I'm afraid that people will think that this moment, which if it is unearned, and might turn out to be unearned, might be exploitative. That uh, I think actually that's the thing that I'm most worried about being judged on, mm-hmm. judged for, because uh, I try very hard not to do that. So, do you guys have, when you're writing your first draft, do you have any particular habits or quirks or superstitions or anything like that about your actual process of writing? This is so corny and awful. I have uh, a desk at which I do most of my writing, at least my initial writing, and (laughs) I have over that desk what I refer to as a vision board of just people who inspire me or images who inspire me and then I usually put on music that inspires me in some way that I I often refer to on a very organic way it rarely has anything specific to do with with what I'm actually writing but I I think in those moments where you have self-doubt as an artist about whether what you're writing is any good or whether you're capable of, of, of setting out the task for yourself that you've often where I'm not entirely clear about what it is at the heart and the fundamental logical core that I'm writing about and I sort of discover that and at some point I always wonder whether I'm, I'm up to the task of actually writing it. I think I have that there because you know the people and the things that inspire me the way I always figure is if, if, if I'm not up to it you know maybe I can take some of their strength and their talent because they certainly are at least from my perception and and bring that energy to what I'm, I'm, I'm writing um, to my process that's that's the only real I don't even call that a habit I guess it's the only real quirk as I have is I feel like I have this place where I sort of gather strength that I feel does not lie within me mm. yeah I think I think really my habit is just to, to find a quiet place and, and try to, to limit the interruptions and I think that's the way I write the best yeah, I know. I, I just because of who I am, I do. I can't write with other people in the house. I mean, I can, but it's hard. I, in fact, in fact, I find it difficult to write at home because I want to go talk to my dog. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, I actually find. I think that uh, laptops, computers are are a godsend to me at least, because I actually find the place that I write to be important, and actually, usually when I'm writing something, I always like to write it in the same place. If I've started writing something in my home office, that's where I like to write it. If I've started writing something in a certain library, I really like to go back. There's something about being in that place. I like to find the same carol I was in in the library to write in. That there's something about, again, the sense memory element of this is where this play is being written. That feels very real to me. And I also know I sort of have a list of places that I have the option to write. And knowing that, uh, A, if I, if I know I'm going to be wanting to doing some writing and knowing I'm going to be spending a, s- a lot of time in a certain part of town, I might strategize to start writing in a place where I can go for an hour and work. But also, especially, there's one, there's a couple of libraries to go to, one university library that feels very much like old books. And, I mean, it feels like an old university library. And there are some things that it's just, it just writes better in with the smell of old paper. And, I mean, it, that that 
really helps in in an interesting way. And I also I I find music really helpful too. Um, and I really tend to use it as a tool. I think like for a very specific reason. I, I think I mentioned began to mention this in the the episode on on preparing is identifying music that goes with things. But you know I certainly think like there are certain songs that just again feel like a relationship does and or sometimes it feels like the tempo of something that I want to do and I'll just put it on my headphones and and play it and I used to when I was first starting writing I needed like total silence to write or drive me crazy and then I could put on music that didn't have lyrics but now you know I'll put on a song in my headphones with lyrics and you know, put it on repeat and just listen to the same song over and over again for six hours while I write. You know, but I find it helps me. And especially, actually, I think part of what it is is the fact that if you're talking about writing five minutes of dialogue, that can take, even the first draft can take several hours to write. You know, and there's something, again, about having that place and having that piece of music to tie you back into that kind of holds time in one place for you. So hopefully you're less writing the four hours later writing the actual minute later version of, uh, of the play. Uh, and the one other thing, which is actually kind of a quirk, is I really always like to have someone who is reading along as I write and not over my shoulder but it's very often Jenny actually but you know somebody who if I've gone off and I've written for several hours that I can bring them the pages and just ask them to read it and not even necessarily ask for a lot of feedback but there's something to me like it feels like it's been registered somehow like it's real real, (laughs) once someone has read it and especially if it's someone you trust and again I don't want to get into a lot of detail when I'm in the middle of writing a first draft with a specific person you know but it does help to say was that interesting (laughs) and yes it was okay good I can move into the next thing because sometimes the answer is it was interesting but it was really confusing in which case you know what I probably ought to fix that before I move on to the next thing, if I'm going to build the next thing on the thing that I wrote this time. For you guys, how do you find that the first draft that you write, the length of the first draft, compares to how long you thought it would be? And how long does it compare to how long the final draft ends up being? It's always longer. I always think it's going to be a certain length, and I just it goes on and on past where I thought like it takes me like I think something can happen in five pages and it takes me seven and I think something can happen in ten pages and it takes me fifteen and it just kind of grows and and I think what it ends up being shorter than that but it usually ends up being longer than I initially thought it would be I have an idea of how long everything that I'm writing will be I, I think I said in a previous podcast that Everything that I write, I attempt to make a two-act play, and that it, there aren't any. <laughs> whether it's it's the structure or or my own discipline uh, or or uh, my own ability as a playwright, I don't have much interest in in, in the ten-minute play form or the one-act form. So everything I, I set out to write, I set out to write as two acts. Invariably, everything I write, the first draft of it is shorter than what I assumed it would be, and then oddly enough, by the time I get to the second or third draft. It's incredibly longer than I had envisioned uh, it would be. I was looking at Blackbirds the other day, which I had said the other day I felt it was near working draft, near near just about 
you know, something that were it would really just need some tweaks and some 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 shaping a little bit. But felt it was really really about where it is. And I was looking at it the other night, and I made one note before I went to bed, <laughs> and I just drew an arrow in between these two galactically long scenes. Just said, "You need a new scene here that does this," and went to bed. And so, and the thing is already much longer than I thought it would be. So that seems to be the case for almost everything I write. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I find the first draft is always longer than I think it's going to be. And the final draft actually usually ends up being longer than the first draft. I mean, I know there's a lot of writers, you know, who will, what they'll do is they'll just write 300 pages of the world and then cut 200 out and, you know, find the story in it. And, I mean, that that's not how, how I work. I mean, it works for those people. But, uh, but usually, I mean, I mean, I think it's for good reason, because usually what it is is sort of in exploring their world you know, I thought I was going to be exploring these five things and I discover seven other things that are interesting to me. And, you know, and and so you need to make room for that. Beyond the length, how closely do you adhere to what your plan was before you sat down to write? I think to the extent that I have a plan, I stick pretty closely to that. But there are usually holes in my plan and so those things are new and were not included <laughs> originally, obviously. I cling to it about as tightly as I possibly can. And what I mean by ad- adherence to the plan, it's the core thing that I'm wrestling with. For, for me, that's, that's pretty non-negotiable. I, I've said in, in previous podcasts, I know that, that you know, I consider myself primarily an actor who, who writes. And in order to get me to write something, it has to be something that I have a great amount of passion and interest in. There are writers who are great where they can take any subject and sort of crank something out. It's pretty accomplished and pretty uh, skillful, and, and and there is their heart and, and uh, you know their life in that. And, and I have great admiration for them. I, I don't if, if if I don't have that level of skill, or if if I'm going to invest something uh, in 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 a play, it it, it has to be a, something of great interest to me. And so, how that thing is structured. Um, you know, most of our workshop discussions about you know anything that I've written uh, have always been about how to make the play that I'm trying to write happen happen, which uh, is, is sort of one of our central tenets. But I think the discussions it it, it tends to apply most specifically to me because um, uh, you know the idea of this play seems to be heading in another direction is is anathema to me. That I, I know what I'm setting out to write, and if it's veering off in another direction, I want to be told that because I am very clear in the central idea that I'm wrestling with, and don't have uh, the patience or 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 the uh, uh, I don't want to be too self-deprecating, but 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 uh, uh, interest in my own skill as a writer to experiment with things that aren't um, of, of core importance to me. I think my idea of what plan I'm sticking to is more about events and moments rather than definitely. I, if if I'm if it's a thematic thing, I don't veer. But I where where there might be some something to stick to as far as a plan for me, it would be about uh, plots and events and things like that. And those can change. An ending might change, but that's that's what I mean when I think about what plan I'm sticking yeah. to. Yeah. I find it varies very much from project to project. There are certain plays, Sunshine, I found my notes recently for that play, and basically 
the play is just the fleshed out version of exactly what the, everything happens in exactly the order. Every piece of dialogue that's in the notes is in the play phrased just that way. There are other plays, I mean, the median line, which you guys all know, I originally sat down to like write a sex farce, and it ended up being this, I mean, it's got funny stuff in it, but it really is kind of this psychological exploration of the nature of promiscuity in, you know, early 20-something, you know. Um, you know, and, and that wasn't the plan. And there actually are things that I discover. Again, sometimes, I think I've talked about this before, and uh, my play makes three, it's just the entire play was writing towards a certain ending that just, as it happened, like I was talking about before, the characters did something different than I expected them to. You know, giving them the freedom to explore. I mean, one of them just like one beat the other one and it was the one I didn't think was going to win and I was actually something happened I literally typed it and stopped typing and like backed away from the computer and looked at it I was like well, did that really well that was smart of her I'm not going to tell her she can't do it that was the smart thing to do I'm not going to make my character dumber by not letting her do the smart thing just because it doesn't match up with what I thought the ending would be and so the ending changed I have a question with that play specifically. How far did you get planned out before that happened? Do you know what I mean? Did you have all of those events kind of mapped out in your head and then something happened towards the end where that... Do you know what I mean? Like, how... When did you veer? Well, it depends how... How do you define event? <laughs> the scenes as, they, as they're laid out over the course of the play. That actually, and it's something I, I mentioned earlier on, because that's a, a full-length play... And that was one where I had a very clear idea of how I was going to get to the end of the first act. And I did have a very clear map to get there. And then I got there, and it set up this whole problem of what, what is going to happen to these people. And then I did. I, did. I didn't before I started writing the play, but certainly before I started the second act, I sat down and really mapped it out. I mean, I, I, did, have a, I did have a basic outline. I knew what I thought the last scene would be. Uh, you know, I kind of knew where the second act would take place, but that was as much as I knew when I started writing. Then when I sat down to write the second act, I did break it down into it is going to be these seven scenes and this is what's going to happen in each scene. And then what I would do before I would write each scene is then sit down and kind of look at each scene and say, okay, this is kind of a mini play of itself that has to have its own arc and, and, and work it out. So it's sort of as I work my way through a big play, through something that's, that, that's a full-length play, I do have a plan for the whole thing, except then kind of plan more and more and more specifically the closer I get mm-hmm. to the thing that I'm writing. But there also are cases, and, and uh, realer than that is an example of a, of a play that is an example of it, and it's, it's actually being done at the Sam French Festival this year. But it was one where actually a very major plot point occurred to me about halfway through writing it. And basically what I did was I went back and I changed the plan. There was, you know, that, that basically was something happened to one of these characters, and the choice that I made was to make it happen because of one of the other characters who's not part of the original plan. But obviously, I think, made it a richer play and more interesting and gave them much more to deal with each other about. But that was a, play, that, but that was a case where I realized partway through that I had a better idea for a plan, but then I actually did go back to my notes and kind of restructure things before I kept, kept writing. I think, actually, I think I know the answer to this question, but I, I'm not sure just because we're all members of the same workshop group. 
But we're talking about writing a first draft, and we're going to be talking about rewriting later on uh, in, a, in a future episode. But do you guys rewrite as you're writing? Do you go back and rewrite thi- rewrite scenes, for instance, before you've written the whole play? I do when I bring it into our workshop before it's finished. Because sometimes I'll bring in a few scenes you know, the beginning to the first few scenes, and so I'll get some feedback, and I'll go back and rewrite them and, and continue. But if I happen to get to the end of the first draft before I bring it to anybody else's, you know, attention for feedback, then I don't, I don't rewrite except in that kind of, like, surging way as I go along. I only rewrite if it's on a scene where I know specifically what needs to happen in that scene, what my intention of writing it is, what the the arc of that scene is, and how it will feed uh, the next scene and how it was fed by the previous scene. Once I'm clear on all those things, whether the, the draft is finished or not, I may go back and look at it. Yeah, I know. I, I tend not to try to overhaul before I'm done, but I definitely do... I mean, part of what we do with our workshop group is I do bring in new scenes that I'm working on to get feedback from the group on, on how it's going. And I usually won't go back a bunch of scenes, but I, I whatever the new thing that I wrote, I will go back and take a look at it and make adjustments for it. But especially because, in theory, in a well-written play, scene two should not be able to happen unless scene one happened. And three, scene three shouldn't be, ha- be able to happen unless scenes one and two have happened, etc., etc., etc. That's a chain of events. So knowing that the next scene that I'm going to be writing is going to be built on what I wrote before, it doesn't mean that I feel like I need to have a polish on every scene before I'm able to move on to the next one, because I certainly do major rewriting once I'm done with a draft. But I do find it hard to move on to the next scene if I feel like the essential thing in the scene before that sets up the action of the next scene isn't there. Because otherwise, the next scene is going to be giving lip service to an idea of something that should have happened in the first scene rather than specifically responding to the specific thing that actually happens in the scene before it or the scenes before it. And the other place where I'll I'll rewrite is I also is getting a full length. Oftentimes when I get to the end of the first act, I'll kind of go back and do a pass just on kind of the whole thing to kind of make it cohere a little bit better in the same way that you want sort of the second act to build on the first act. And in some ways, there can be sort of structural mirrors and things like that between the first act and the second act. So I kind of want to, you know, be sure that I've set up those things. And sometimes if something occurs to me in scene nine that I want to add that I think it would be great if we had had a hint of it earlier, I might go back and add that in. But again, it is to... Instead, I mean, I certainly could, and I'm sure very good writers do, just say, well, I'll write this scene in scene one, and in my second draft I'll add something earlier on. But I would prefer to know specifically what is the setup so I can play off the setup as well as possible in the new thing I'm adding. Now, before we, we finish uh, today, let's uh, I want to kind of run through some specific elements of plays and just kind of get a sense from, from you guys about what it is and, and how these different things evolve in your first draft, specifically. Your characters. How how do your characters take shape for you in a first draft, and, and how much do they change from what your plan for the character was when you sat down to write? I think they, they stay the same, but they I learn more things about them. It's, it's not that they change, 
It's just I have new, richer information about them in a way. It's interesting. Lead characters in what I write are always some reflection of me. And therefore the other characters always represent some sort of argument that I'm having with with myself or with, with others or with culture. And so those other characters, I need to be clear on on which aspect of, of the argument or, or the situation or the, the question that I'm wrestling with, which aspect they represent. And sometimes it's it's finding a purpose for that character in relation to, to that lead character's question and that lead character's struggle. I find, actually, because I, I find it interesting, Jen, that, that you say uh, that character is really the thing that you are have a, the best handle on when you are sitting down to write. Because I, I feel like in very many ways I don't have any conscious concept of the characters when I start writing them. I know about the situations. I know about the world. Again, I feel like I have images of them that I, I actually feel like carry a lot of weight that tell me a lot about them. But I very rarely... I feel like I very rarely know that much about them until they I put them in a room and, and they start doing stuff. And I sort of discover the characters as they go as I go along but but again they're, they're somehow I think based in, in just sort of these snapshot pictures that I have of who these characters are and and what they're doing in these pictures that I that the evolution usually seems pretty natural but I feel like if I were to sit down and start to write a play tomorrow and you said so what is the character of Emma going to be like I would ha- I feel like I would have no idea mm-hmm. and I'm actually not sure at what point in the process that takes shape it's actually interesting for me when I say that I, I mean I, I do feel like a character's one of my strong suits, but I feel like it's not so much an academic knowledge. Like, I don't know everything, every fact about them. It's more like it kind of... Because how you were describing images before also, and that really kind of struck something in me. I feel like it's... They're fully modeled in my head. And it's not something that actually language describes it's like a memory like that is a real person they behave in this way this is who they are this is where they're from like but it's not like i could write down all these things you know all these statistics about them it's it's a person and i know who that person is like i know who you guys are it's so interesting i i feel like i have with all the characters like a core essence that may be an action may be an attribute may be a relationship some sort of core attribute and then as I write, I find out things about them. And I don't know where that comes from. <laughs> Do your character names ever change? Yes. I, I have a difficulty. We, we, we've yeah. talked about this. I, I have a difficulty with character names. I have a difficulty with, with titles. I have a tendency to, at least in a first draft, to make all the characters have similar sounding names. Um, where they'll all you know, be, a, be very, very, very similar and, and, and alliterative in, in, in a way that's not helpful. It is somewhat confusing, and I don't know what that's about, but uh, it's something I need to be wary of. We talked about this in the last in the last uh, part of the series, but usually my names stay stay the same through the draft or the portion of the draft until I bring it in for feedback, and then they might change. But I don't usually change them as I'm going before I show it to anybody. Usually stay the same until somebody else has read it or I've I've gotten feedback on it. I feel if I if I've consciously selected a name, like the names just sort of again just sort of organically appear to me. I feel like if I've consciously selected a name, there's something that rings somewhat false for me 
with it that that sort of and I don't know why sort of John Patrick Shanley has this great play called Four Dogs and a Bone. There's four characters involved in a making of a film. There's a director, or I'm sorry, there's a producer, there's two actors, and a writer. And it's a struggle over who's going to uh, win out in the control of this film. And the second that someone pointed out to me that the writer's name was Victor and what that had to say about the, the script, the play lost something for me because it felt a little ham-handed in a way that it didn't prior because I had never been... I had never put those 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 two pieces of information together, so names I struggle with because you want something that seems suitable, yet you don't want it, something that seems symbolic in some way. Yeah, I actually I do change names sometimes, and actually, what I find strange is sometimes when I go back and look at my notes for a play, I'll realize that a character had a different name that I don't ever remember them having. But I actually think that part of it is is to me. I think on whatever subconscious level, the name dictates a lot about the character, or not necessarily dictates it, but that yeah. that when I pick a name, it usually is because it feels right for who this person ought to turn out to be. Absolutely, um, yeah. and you know, and, and it and it helps, you know, for somebody to be calling someone, you know, Cassie, like the guy have a character named Cassie and makes three, then honestly, I think the choice of that name was one of the most important choices that I made in that entire play because there's something about keeping her feeling like a Cassie. That, and what that means to me. And you know what? It's just a mix of I've known two or three Cassies in my time and also the sound that it makes. I don't know why it is, but, but when I, I say the name Cassie, it feels an awful lot like what I feel that character ought to be like. And I think when I change names, it's because it stops feeling like them. Or sometimes because it's too similar. That I is do that, too, sometimes. Like, it, you realize that after you hear it, or you've read it, and it seems like, oh, that might be confusing. Yeah. There's one play that, that I wrote that, that has, like, three generations, four generations of fathers and sons, and there are all sort of variations on the family name that they have. And even as I was writing it, the whole thing I was I kept thinking was... I don't ever want to have to direct this because it would be so hard to take notes if I <laughs> if they've all got the same first three letters to their name. I mean, I always I always try to make sure I think because I'm a director that the characters' names start with a different letter so that I can do blocking notes more easily. <laughs> well, Jen brought in a a draft of one of her plays, um, Bake Sale, and one of the I think it was the initial draft where every character. Their, their name was a variation on Jennifer, which was actually really cool for what you were trying to get across, but it was incredibly difficult yeah. in yeah. talking so about it, it and yeah. reading it. But I that, that that's a case where I had one for the first draft, and then, but it was the same for the first draft, mm-hmm. but the, the, it, it, when I rewrote it, I changed it. An initial draft for for another screenplay I wrote in which there were four characters named Grady, Gordy, Bobby, That's and Tommy. Right. <laughs> and it never occurred to me that, that was a problem until the four of them got in a bar fight and attempting to write the <laughs> with each other and attempting to write the, the the directions of how Gordy, Grady, Bobby, and Tommy would fight. It was just, it was it, it just sounded silly. It sounded silly. <laughs> and this is something. And we did, I think, actually our first episode of this podcast on what makes a well written play. And this is something that sort of came up in that one, too. But it is interesting, I think, that most people, when you ask them, you know, what is a play, you know, ultimately the thing that they most attach to is the dialogue, the things that the people say. Mm -hmm. And I think, actually, we've talked for, you know, 
two and a half hours at this point uh, uh, between the, the, these two episodes about the and rarely has dialogue come up. How do you guys, in what sense do you have of how your characters' voices evolve in a first draft? Well, I think for me it's that thing of knowing who the characters are and imagining how they would talk to each other. So it's kind of like you were talking about an improv of the play, where I am both people, but different people, and just talking back and forth, hearing how something would sound to a person and what they would say back. It's it's very naturalistic and, and intuitive based on who the characters are. And then I think there's also an extent to which is, this came to my mind after listening back to the previous part of the series. It's a little bit of a, of a poetry, too, where that just sounds right. That rhythm sounds right. That exchange sounds right. And certainly there's like a, you know, obviously different playwrights have different rhythms of dialogue. You know, Mamet is a classic example of of a certain style of dialogue, and I think I've got a certain style of exchange that just comes naturally. What does that mean? It, it, it's something that you hear said a lot. And I mean, I know what it means, but the idea of an ear for dialogue. This person has an ear for dialogue. Well, I think that when it's not there, you can say that doesn't sound like anybody I know. And when it sounds like every, you know, you know a person who talks like that, I think that's what counts as an ear for dialogue. For, for me, ear for dialogue it means you, you strike that balance of being interesting and creative, yet still organic and truthful. That these people in that, that you've created in this world are engaging in, in, in interesting, provocative, in which they've justified you know, your attention for you know, however long uh, the play or the film will last, yet still seem completely grounded in reality. Kevin Smith is is someone whose films I enjoy some of them. I don't enjoy some of them. But somebody once I had a realization midway through one of his films once that he, his characters don't talk like anybody I know. You know, and and that sort of ruined the experience of Kevin Smith films for me, which up to that point I thought were incredibly hilarious and interesting, and I realized not one of these people talks like anybody I've ever met, or more importantly, that I would imagine I would ever meet. It's interesting, because I I wonder if you were to ask him if he thinks they do, and I wonder if whether or not he thinks they do has any impact whatsoever on how good the movies are. Yeah. (laughs) Because, I mean, there is certainly a stylization to the dialogue of his characters. There's a stylization of, of Mamet. Yes. People don't talk the way Mamet characters talk, but you totally buy it because it's also something about telling you something about the world that they're trying to create. And I guess it's that question of do Kevin Smith's characters talk the way they do because it's something about the sort of world and, 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 and sensibility he wants to create or because that's how he thinks people talk. That, that's just a question. I don't know. I think part of the part of the reason that I think one of the reasons I have such a wonderful time listening to Mamet's characters in his plays is because they don't speak like anyone I know. But I imagine there's a world out there I haven't experienced where people talk like that. Part of it is I think you hope there's a world. Yes, <laughs> yes. I, I you know, and I try not to limit you know my perception of a play to only or my suspension of disbelief to only what. To, to my experiences. And I think part of my issue with, say, Kevin Smith is the worlds he creates. I've known those worlds. I've lived in those worlds. I've never lived in the world of Glengarry Glen Ross. I've never lived in the world of American Buffalo. I would like to and think it's cool. Um, so to step into that world for a little bit is there's already a, a, an automatic sense of delicious enjoyment I'm going to get out of that. Kevin Smith's world, you know, I've, I, 
I recognize that world and have been in that world and, and have a sense of what those people speak and sound like. And I think we write like that. I don't think we necessarily speak like that. I think, uh, I think what I look for, what I think is good dialogue, is a combination of what you said about um, being grounded in reality and also speaks to what the characters' insights into the world are. And to a certain extent, but not too symbolic, it says it better than most people can say it. I mean, there is a heightened reality to dramatic writing where some people get to say it perfectly the first time, where, like, in a real-life situation, I might not think of the response until, like, four days later or, you know, five minutes after I've left the situation. Sometimes in place, they get to say it right away. They get to be right on top of it, you know? Yeah, and I think a lot of what makes good, and I think we're talking about naturalistic dialogue, because again, yeah. stylistic dialogue, stylized dialogue is another is another animal. But I think I think a lot of it is that it's about characters speaking because of what they know and what they know of the other people and what they know of their situation. Where I think a lot of dialogue that feels ham-fisted is people talking because of what is true that there's sort of a author's eye view on what is going on, that it feels like that... Information that needs to come out. Information that needs to come out, etc., etc. And, I mean, ultimately, you need to do that. But, I mean, I think I think what makes good dialogue, and also the way in which, again, specifically a character's voice develops, it has to do with, again, what do they know about their world? Where did they come from in the world? What do they want? And how are they trying to get it? I mean, that most people really are, you know all the time trying to do the very best with everything that they've got and so a lot of it's really figuring out what they've got and letting them do their very best you know including what they know what they know big picture what they know about this specific situation and and giving them efficacy one thing actually that we did not talk about about the preparation podcast and perhaps we should have touched on but we can touch upon it here is location for your plays how much do you know about location before you start writing and is that something that evolves I think that's a, something that almost never evolves for me. I know where it is. I know the place. Possibly I've been there, and it usually doesn't change. I either consciously am aware of it and setting it in a very specific reason, setting it in a very specific setting for a very specific reason, or I have sort of a instinctive vision somewhere in my head of where this takes place, that at some point usually... Someone from workshop at some point mentions to me that I might want to clarify that setting. Just sort of been assumed by me because in in my head it's 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 so clear and yet not explicitly stated. You also wrote an entire screenplay called Iowa. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, yeah. There's there, there's some pieces that I've I've, that's I've written. Very Oddly enough, you know the the two screenplays that I'm I'm writing. Uh, Iowa and Midnight to Eight both take place in very specific places and need to take place in those places and as far as I'm concerned could not take place somewhere else. Mm -hmm. The plays I write, you know, Blackbirds, I have a very specific sense of where that play takes place in my head but if someone were to mistake the town that I think it's in for another town, frankly it wouldn't bother me. (laughs) But I think even within Blackbirds though, beyond sort of the macro question of what town it takes place in, you know, that there are very important choices, it seems to me, that the guys hang out in the garage. Yes. And that the scenes between the husband and wife happen in the kitchen. They could happen in the living room. They could happen in the bedroom. They could also happen in the garage. They could happen on the deck behind the cou- behind the house. But I think that choice 
to make them take place in the kitchen, I I think is is feels like an important one. Yeah. Actually, and, and like, how did that choice come to you? I feel that fights happen in the kitchen. Um, <laughs> uh, at least domestic ones. For me, family conflicts were always dealt with at the kitchen table or in the kitchen, and it was somewhat inappropriate to deal with them elsewhere. I'm, I'm not sure what that's about. Um, <laughs> it may be something worth exploring. But you know, in that play, the garage is set up because it's a, a little bit of an escape place. It's a bit of a, a playpen, and I, you know, I think. I'm not alone in having one of those as a kid. Specifically, it wasn't the garage, but that's what that represents. There's a lot that's instinctual about my plays that I think I only realize afterwards as I start looking at the landscape that I've laid out, what things may mean. And I'm realizing in the screenplay Iowa, the familial conflicts between uh, the lead character and his ex-wife all happen either in the kitchen with the exception of one scene which happens in the supermarket the frozen food section so there's something about food and domesticity and and conflict that is of some interest to me or resonates with me in some odd way we uh, we've talked a fair bit about how the plot evolves how about specific structure of things do you find that where you thought the act break would fall is where the act break falls or or that the major events tend to happen in the order you thought they would I think I think for me they tend they tend to happen where I thought they would as I said in the last part of the series I tend to write one acts and so there's not really an act break there uh, obviously but in one full length I wrote the act break did move around but that was in rewriting rather than in the first draft in the first draft usually that everything kind of sticks on schedule for me the things that I've written thus far I, I find that a, I always need to move the act break, or like in a, a typical you know three act structure of a screenplay, the the first act always seemed to take the longest. When I was reviewed by by several screenwriting award judges, they they always said that I seemed so patient, and it's it's funny I, I seem to sort of set up this world that I am very patient about constructing, and I probably need to become more disciplined as a writer in that at least in that first act. I'm not sure necessarily if those scenes always happen in a specific sequential reason for a specific sequential reason. However, once I get to the second act, once that world is sort of created and all the pieces are sort of out on the table, things tend to happen at a breakneck sequential uh, pace at, at that point. It's funny that my first act seemed to be long and expansive and less structured and that my second acts uh, tend to be very tight and shoot directly towards a resolution. I actually find that my it's, it's, my second acts actually tend to be about 10% longer than my first acts. And I always think they'll be shorter, because generally I think a second act should be shorter than a first act. I would argue my, my, my second acts tend to be almost 50% shorter than my first acts. Well, that's the, I mean, that's actually probably closer to what the rule of thumb is. So <laughs> you win purely by accident. But I do find that my basic structural guideposts they're sometimes they move but for the most part they tend to stay intact and i think part of it is because i really uh well for two reasons which is one i tend to try to to set pretty firm boundaries there to give myself plenty of room to run or not plenty of room but plenty of permission to run because i know that this series of events if they happen in this order is going to tell my story and therefore I can let the characters go. But also, 
I think because of that and because of the way that they run it, they're running so much around these storytelling fence posts that they become, that those fence posts become really ingrained in the story. That you kind of, they are sort of the, the, the wire mesh inside the concrete that gives it shape. And once you poured the concrete, it's awfully hard to, like there's a number of, of plays that I, I feel like if I took this scene out, like the play would make no goddamn sense. Like none. I need that scene there because that's scene eight is the scene that gets us from scene seven to scene nine. And I could rewrite scene eight till the cows came home. But usually scene eight needs to be there. Um, and I will say, I said it before, that a lot of I, my act breaks tend to be, tend to stay where they are because I usually am writing to that break. And usually, actually, in my plays, there tends to be either a major shift in location or a major shift in time in between the acts. The themes that you're writing about, do those change and evolve, and how do they find their way into your first act? And I'm sorry, into your first draft. Yeah, as I said before, when I start writing something, I have a very clear idea what the theme is. And so... For me, at least at this point, I feel if a new theme starts developing that is either, th- that is not in any way, at least at that point, seems related to the, the original theme, I find something else to write about regarding that theme. I, I cling uh, very, very tightly to whatever theme it was that inspired me to write that. For, for some reason, I'm, I'm just uh, very dogged about that. I'm, again, I'm not sure what that's about, but the theme for something does not change for me. I think that my theme doesn't change. My problem with the first draft is usually that I might have more than one theme, and as a result, I'm actually kind of writing two plays at once, and that's something that usually gets has to be addressed in the first round of feedback in this first round of rewriting, is that, or hopefully in the first round of rewriting, that really you can only tell one of those, you can tell about one of the themes, really, really because they're it's muddy. But I keep them both for the first draft. I tend, and I actually said something very similar to this in our last uh, episode on, on writing. But I actually used to write very much to theme, and and that I it was it was very important. And again, anything that began to stray from the theme, I was writing towards. And there were several years where every play I was writing was essentially on the same theme. And I don't I don't tend to write so much to theme anymore. I, I tend to write much more that there's a circumstance that really interests me, and certainly there are sort of underlying questions that that in order I think for me to be interested enough in something to write about it's because it intrigues me because I wonder what it's about I wonder what would cause people to put themselves in this situation and or do something about that because I could imagine it happening but I often now find that as I'm writing I'm discovering what it is that I'm actually writing about and I usually I realize part way through you know that actually a lot of times writing a play is really kind of a learning experience for me. You know, that I, I really, it's its in a way an argument with myself about a topic. You know, where it's just a, something that intrigues me and I find two people who have very different viewpoints on it and find a way to get behind both of them and let them have it out. And um, the, the themes to the things that I write actually tend to be about the fact that there's a gray area. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean that not isn't in and of itself a theme, but that is usually what's what's related is that there's the places where people think that they are right 
they are often right, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the other people are wrong. You know. Um, right. um, and so the last uh, thing to, to, to touch on, yeah, you, you walk into your first draft with some specific moments in mind. What percentage of those survive their way through the first draft? I think any specific moment that I've thought of usually survives the first draft. Every single one of them. I'll find a way to make it work. <laughs> yeah. It, it, if I have a specific moment, that's probably what's driving me to write the play. So it all, they all make it into the first draft. Yeah. How many of them make it into the last draft? 90%. Almost all of them, I would say. Almost all of them. Because I, I actually agree. Usually the very specific moments that excite me about to get writing a play end up in the first draft. But that's sort of the thing that they, they talk about, and it was someone, and I forget who, but talked about that rewriting is, is like killing killing your babies, good mm-hmm. rewriting, is that there's so many times I know as a director and dramaturg working with playwrights that so often it's the reason that they sat down to write the play. Once they get four or five drafts into it, the play has become about something else, and it's that thing that they think of as being the defining thing about a play is really the thing that's standing in its way of succeeding. You know, I have no idea if I'm... It's hard to tell if I'm disciplined enough to take those things out of my plays. I do know there have been some times where I have just realized I love this moment and need to find another play to put it in because it's it, it, it's mucking this one up. The struggle I tend to have is that I have the same moment over and over in a play, uh, just articulated or, or enacted in different ways, and... Uh, I agree with you about the you know killing your babies you know and usually the choices I have to make or which moment is most effective and gets at the the core of what I'm trying to write about and is placed in, in the the most effective spot and that and then what do I do with those other moments that I, I may love as well that just aren't quite, aren't quite the favorite son mm-hmm. so finally to wrap up what is it when you are done with a first draft. What is it that you don't know by that point? You've got an entire play written. And I guess two questions. One, what do you not know? And two, how do you know it's not finished? How do you know that your first draft is not ready to be a last draft? Well, maybe kind of negative, but I kind of assume (laughs) that it won't be perfect. I think what I don't know is a lot. It can feel like a whole play. But until I hear other people read it, I really don't know if it works. I can't, I, I have trouble reading reading it to myself and thinking, okay, that's, I mean, you can and, and you want to before you bring it into people, you want to have the, the best possible version of that play for them to read. So I think, you know, you, you, you have to do your own kind of internal reading, but yeah, I, I have to hear it to know if it works. I never know the questions I've unintentionally brought up. Oh, that too. Yeah. That's always that's why workshop is so valuable to me is because I'm always very clear on what the core theme is. And I get done with the first draft and I usually know it's just a first draft because I'm I'm just not satisfied. I'm not quite at the heart of what it is that I'm I'm trying to get at. But for me the thing that I always know that I absolutely do not know is <laughs> you know, to use Secretary Rumsfeld's terms, I, I, I don't know the unknowns. The unknown unknowns I, I, I am unaware of. And it's always a huge revelation for me in workshop when people read a draft of my play 
and say, well, what is that moment about? Or, you know, did you intend to deal with this? Or how are you going to deal with that? It's always, my jaw always sort of drops a little because I have no idea. And usually need to wrap my head around it. I usually find at this point that I do have a good sense of what the problems are. I do have a good sense of what things need clarification, what things need to be deepened, what things probably need to go. I definitely like to bring them in front of people to find out if those things that I think are true are true, although usually they end up being reflected in what people say. The thing that I don't know at the end of a first act, uh, first draft, honest to God, is I have no idea if anyone in the world other than me will care for a moment about it. Like I, I that's one thing I feel like I have no perspective. Every single time I write something, and I bring it into workshop, like I feel like technically I feel how it works. I, I you know, all of those things. I know I find it interesting. But I don't think there's ever a time that I bring it into workshop that if everyone in the room went, you know what, I just, I just didn't care. I, I, like, I, I would not be surprised by that. And I don't know why. I, I, but I think part of it, I guess, is that it is such a visceral and personal experience that you hope you've written plays, you've done things, you hope that you have a sense of what's going to play with other people. But especially since, especially in a first draft, I tend to not be thinking too much about what's going to play with other people, I do wonder if people are going to have any interest in it whatsoever. And also, I mean, going back to something we were talking about before, because I think it's true, is what people are going to think it says about me that I wrote it. Especially because I think playwriting and acting and directing... Or, the thing is, acting and directing also are incredibly personal things. But the personal work you're doing is being filtered through the writing. When you've written something, there's no filter. Or there actually is. It's filtered through the character, but I don't think people draw that line as clearly. They assume that since you had all of the power in the world, that everything that ended up on that page is stuff that's there because you believe in it. But I do find, again, Workshop, who are a lot of people who I've known for years, many of my most trusted friends who have read 15 of my other plays, I still bring in something that I think touches on something controversial and wonder, are they going to think that I am in fact a pedophile because I wrote about... I mean, and of course they don't, but I, 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 I have no idea what people are going to take away about me because, again, the feeling is, even though it's not true, is this thing that you're presenting of your work is the only thing that people know about you in that minute. Hmm. Um, and when you actually are a playwright and that's what people's, you know, a playwright and the audience is coming to play, the fact is that's true. It's not true with the people you know, but sometimes it feels like it is. So, on that happy note, we will wrap up. Uh, thank you to Tim and Jenny and Jen. If you have not yet subscribed, please go to iTunes and do so. If you are subscribed and you like what you hear and want other people to hear it as well, do write us a review. Give us stars in iTunes. If you have any questions for the group, please email us at podcast at cryhavitcompany.org. And we will be back soon with more discussions with us and other members of our community about issues having to do with the art and craft and lifestyle of being a working actor, writer, or director in New York City. So for all of us, we will talk to you soon. You can learn more about the Cry Havoc Company at cryhavoccompany.org. 
questions or comments can be sent to podcasts at cryhavitcompany.org. All music from this show came from the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Thanks for listening and please subscribe.